You're listening to the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network, powered by Interstate Batteries. From your truck to your trail camera, Interstate Batteries has you covered. Visit your local Interstate Battery store today or online at interstatebatteries.com. Interstate Batteries, outrageously dependable. Welcome once again to the DIY Sportsman Podcast with your hosts Garrett Prawl and Boudreaux Boswell. Seeing as this podcast will be released during mid-November, we really wanted to put out a firearm hunting podcast. In addition to caliber and bullet discussions, we dive into firearm-specific strategies, especially for those hunting heavily pressured areas, along with adaptations for those with gun seasons either during or after the rut. First, a quick update on Boswell season. Oh, it's been slow. I've been so busy with work. It's fall migration, so I'm dealing with all kinds of birds. Um, so I, I'm planning on going out Friday. It's Veterans Day, so I'll have that day off work, and then Saturday. And what do you plan on doing those couple days? Uh, I'm de- not sure. I have a elk and a mule deer tag, so I don't know whether I'm going to plan on going after elk, but it's mule deer rut, so may run into one of them and decide to chase them instead. Yeah, I guess how do you even hunt elk this time of year? Uh, spot and stalk basically, um, you know, spot them on the ridge, see where they go to bed and then try to sneak in on them on the bed. Have you gotten some more snow? No, surprisingly we haven't. We got a little bit up high, um, maybe 9,000 feet and above, um, snowed here a little bit on, I don't know, Wednesday, maybe Tuesday. Today is Wednesday. So yesterday it snowed a little bit, but not much. And then in just a couple weeks, you're heading over to Missouri. Yeah, the 17th I leave here to go to Missouri until the like the 2nd of December. And then I think middle of December I may go back to Virginia um, and hunt seek a deer back there with some of them guys. And then I think early part of Arizona, going to head to Arizona to chase coos deer. Nice. Yeah. That'll be a fun change of pace. Yeah, it's going to be definitely different, that's for sure. How about you? Well, normally this time of year I'm bow hunting in Wisconsin for the rut. Either that or I'm bow hunting up in an archery-only area in northern Minnesota. But uh, this year I'm doing something a little different. I'm forcing myself to learn a big marsh in the Twin Cities. And so part of me, part of what I'm doing to force myself to learn it is not buying a Wisconsin tag as of yet. So right now I only have the Minnesota tags and I'm forcing myself just to hunt in that marsh, which is public open everybody and it's firearm season right now. So I decided I kind of went back and forth on whether or not I wanted to keep bow hunting it or just buy a firearms tag. Cause you only get one buck in Minnesota for all your tags. So if I were to uh, buy a firearms tag and fill it with a buck, then that's it. I can fill right. my archery tag on a doe and some other unit, but no other bucks. So I decided to do that and I'm able to now use that firearm uh, license and use that shotgun in ways that I wouldn't be able to bow hunt anyway. So I'm able to, um, I guess, change my strategy to try and go after a little bit bigger caliber of deer than I would try and chase after with the recurve. And then I'm pretty much only going to probably shoot a really nice buck if I see one. Otherwise, I'd be more happy just, I guess, letting that tag go to waste and trying late season for pretty much any deer with that recurve. So really nice deer, are you classifying that by number of points, Boone and Crockett or Pope and Young score, or age? Uh, A little bit of both. I mean, I'd be more than happy to shoot an older buck that has a junkie rack. Something about the big body size and maturity of those older deer gets to me, but uh, I'm not going to lie if I see one with a nice rack, which for me on public land and some of these heavily pressured areas, anything Pope and Young or bigger, I'd be ecstatic with even though there's some giants out there there's definitely i would imagine there's probably at least a couple booners running around in the uh the public land around the twin cities metro yeah metro seems to really hold a a lot of big deer for the most part so yeah talking about firearm season um that's kind of what this podcast today is going to be about is you know firearms strategies techniques uh you know we can dive into caliber choices things like that so you know is there anything that you do different knowing you're going out with a gun compared to you know your compound or your recurve yeah well I mean it kind of depends the the biggest thing 
that's different during firearm season, of course, is the number of hunters. Um, so if I'm going out firearms hunting, there's a couple of questions that I'll kind of use as guidelines to determine how I'm going to hunt. And that's going to be whether I'm going alone or whether I'm going to be in a small group, uh, timing of the firearm season versus the rut. Minnesota is right during the middle of the rut, but Wisconsin, the gun season is after the rut. So that makes a difference. And then these two kind of go together, the amount of hunter pressure and the amount of cover. So let's say you got a massive amount of public land and you got a lot of hunters. I still might treat that as less to overall pressure than just a small area that only gets a couple guys in it. Right. So, so quick question in your area, is it centerfire rifles that you're allowed to use? What are you allowed to use for, what do they classify as firearm season? In Wisconsin, I can use anything. I can use a centerfire rifle. Uh, that's statewide. But in Minnesota, the areas that I hunt, it's shotgun only. Slugs or buckshot? Slugs only. Either. Okay, slugs only. So with a shooting shotgun and slugs, what's your effective range with that? Uh, it's ultimately limited by how steady of a rest I have. I mean, off the bench, I can shoot deer killing groups at 200 yards. But uh, in an actual wood scenario, it's obviously going to be a lot less than that. If I got a nice uh, a nice rest up against a tree or if I'm using like a trigger stick or something, I'd be comfortable taking a 125, 150-yard shot. But open hand, probably well less than 100. Okay, so with that, do you treat it any differently stand placement-wise than you would say you were bow hunting? Would you set up a little farther from a field edge? You know, Would you do anything stand placement-wise differently? Yeah, I would. Uh, so again, it depends on what the cover is like. If it's a marsh, I absolutely will choose a stand location based on the ability to see and cover a larger area. Like the places that I've been hunting the last couple weeks or the last, last few days, last weekend, it's an area where you have a mix of cattails and marsh grass and hardwoods. And on some of these areas where you might have like a point where it's hardwoods sticking out into the marsh, and that point is surrounded by cattails, marsh grass, and, and like willow brush or uh, dogwood, what some people call it different names. I call it red brush most of the time. But if I were bow hunting that, I would maybe pick the best trail along that point that I would expect deer to move in and out of that bedding area. Whereas with the shotgun, I'm picking a tree that I can get up as high as I can that I still have some back cover and cover as many gaps in that red brush as I can to be able to shoot into. And so a lot of times I'll be able to see a lot of deer that I probably never would have even seen bow hunting because I would have been in a different tree. So you're taking advantage of that extended range to determine a different stand location than what you typically would so you can cover a further area. Right, exactly. But then on the flip side of that, there's a lot of times in Wisconsin where if I'm hunting like a hill country area, there's no open fields perhaps that I'm hunting in. I'm just hunting funnels similar to how I would if I were bow hunting. And most of my shots are within 30, 35 yards regardless. Right. Yeah. And I think a lot of people take it, use that same philosophy to take advantage of firearm season, um, whether they hunt field edges or just areas in general where they can cover both sides of a ridge or just basically be able to cover more area because they're using a, a firearm that can reach more area basically. Right. And a lot of times what I'll even do is I'll, I'll look on like Onyx and a lot of times if I'm say hunting the cattails, I can see those trails and I'll kind of pick a pinpoint location of where I might want to put a stand and I'll just take the line tool and I'll just, you know, click on different trails in the marsh that I can see and just be able to see, oh, you know, 300 feet, that's a hundred yards. I can make that shot 150 yards. That's, you know, borderline. I'll be able to see, I guess, how many trails I can potentially cover before I even go and set my stand up. Right. So with that, do you, do you prefer shotgun hunting or do you prefer centerfire rifle? Cause I know like in the Midwest, um, some of the States, Iowa, places like that limit it to shotgun only. Um, whereas some States allow like Missouri allows any centerfire rifle. Well, I prefer the centerfire. It's, I mean, it's just so much more accurate. Even my shotgun is, you know, I'd consider it fairly accurate, but it still doesn't hold a candle to my 30 out six. <laughs> I'd hope not. Otherwise you got a really good shotgun. <laughs> okay. So would you, would you like to see, um, was it Minnesota that was shotgun only? 
Yeah, it's shotgun only in certain areas, and I'm in one of those areas, which is the same thing that Wisconsin was not too many years ago, and then they changed it to open it up statewide. And I think there's other states that have kind of followed suit, and Wisconsin probably wasn't the first one either. I would imagine that after a certain amount of time, Minnesota might be that way too. I guess there's been studies that show that um, rifles are actually safer than shotguns in certain scenarios, which is kind of some of the reasoning behind why they changed the legislation. So would you like to see the area you hunt in now um, become a center fire only? Or would you like to keep it a shotgun only? Mm, well, for myself, I'd rather see it be center fire because then a lot of those, now I can, you know, open up my range to potentially 200 yards plus if I have the solid rest. Um, and as far as, I guess, other people, because you have to consider that there's going to be other guys using those those weapons as well. I guess to me, it wouldn't really bother me either way. So I'd prefer the center fire personally. Okay. That's interesting because I know that's a, a big topic in a lot of these states. I think if I remember right, maybe Indiana was one of the last ones that just went to, you know, all center fire. And I think they had a big snafu when they actually wrote the legislation where it didn't allow the center fire rifles on public or state owned land. Um, so they actually just passed like a, some type of like emergency executive order or something like that just here a couple of days before firearm season open to allow that use on public land hmm, that's interesting yeah so i know it's a it's a pretty hot topic in these areas where it's allowed um i know in virginia I'll, you know it's similar to there a lot of places you're allowed to use center fire rifles some places you're only allowed to use shotguns only um so it was kind of a mixed hodgepodge so you could literally you know county to county was really different basically well i know in like the areas of wisconsin where it's center fire rifle it's not like it's center fire rifle only it's usually center fire rifle or lesser weapon so you can use a shotgun you can use a muzzle or you can use a bow to fill that firearm tag right and like missouri for example if i remember right you're not allowed to use buckshot out of a shotgun um you know whereas some places in virginia that i hunted you're only allowed to use buckshot in a shotgun so it's just interesting to see such a such a drastic change from you know state to state or from even county to county on what they feel is whether it's you know doing it for safety reasons or doing it for deer density reasons you know they need to harvest a certain percentage of deer compared to the hunters Um, so i think that's a really interesting thing is how different it is from state to state yeah i i'm definitely a fan of data and research driven decisions in those regards when it comes to weapon choice yeah absolutely um to me, I actually read a study here. It was an older study. I think the South Carolina DNR actually did it. If I remember correctly, the study the study was done to determine basically the recovery increase if you if you allow the use of dogs. Um, but it was done on a like a uh, maybe five thousand acre private hunt club um, in South Carolina, and they did a they broke it out to a lot of research on. You know, caliber, um, did caliber have an effect on basically the distance the deer rent from being shot or was cal- caliber negligible in that as well as, you know, shot placement, how far the deer went if shot, you know, in the shoulder with a 243 compared to the shoulder with a 30 caliber bullet. So it was kind of a pretty interesting study um, that was done there that had a lot of interesting facts that came out of it. Do you know if they also tested bullet type? Yes, they tested, they took into effect, I think they broke it down into like a soft bullet versus a hard bullet. Mm -hmm. So I I don't know exactly how they broke, what would fall under each one of those, how they broke that down. Um, And they even looked at like hand loads versus factory loads, as well as custom rifles versus, um, you know, like stock rifles that you can buy off the shelf. Hmm, Interesting. Yeah, it was a pretty interesting study. Where do I get access to that if I want to read that study? I think it's actually on just the South Carolina DNR website. Um, there's a, a link to the study and kind of how they broke it down as well as their results. And it, it was pretty interesting because to me it showed that, if I remember right, the there was no difference in a custom rifle versus a uh, standard you know, stock rifle. Bullet types, I want to say the soft core bullets did better. Um, they actually had like shooting percentage for the people that shot. 
um, and, you know, miss percentage for bucks and does. So you hear it called buck fever because you're more likely to miss a buck. Um, when their statistics show, you know, it's 83% chance you're going to kill that deer anyways, uh, whether it's a buck or a doe. And then they looked at, you know, like average shot distance. I think for that particular study was like a hundred and 113 yards, but the average shot distance for shots that were missed was 150 yards. And, uh, the other interesting thing was they looked at the, the caliber choice for, knockdown power if you want to call it so basically you know a deer shot with a 243 is it going to go as far as a deer shot with a you know 300 or 30 out six um and it's more they study basically said it's all on shot placement it has nothing to do with with caliber choice and did they make any changes to their laws do you know based on that study i do not know the answer to that question that would be something interesting to find out i know for me i've even in the same day, I've shot multiple deer and had very different reactions to what that bullet did. Uh, so when I was growing up in Wisconsin, I, um, was using a 12 gauge with rifled slugs and I had two does that I shot in one morning. And one of those does, I hit it double lung and it dropped right on the spot. The next one I shot, I went through the front shoulder and passed through the rest of the deer. And that one took off 50 yards. So I thought that was kind of interesting because I think a lot of times people assume that if you hit it in the shoulders, they're going to drop. And that's not necessarily the case. And I know more recently I've used my 30 out six with a uh, Nosler partition bullet, I believe, or no Acubond, Acubond. I think it's may, might be similar to the Nosler, but not th quite the same, but that bullet is more of like a hybrid where it's not exactly a soft point, heavy expanding bullet. Uh, it's designed for a little bit more penetration and I'll generally have complete pass-throughs of that bullet. And as a result, the deer don't seem to be as likely to drop right in their tracks. They'll typically run off 30, 40 yards like they were shot with a bow, but then there's not as much meat spoilage either. Yeah. So I grew up shooting a 243, uh, for whitetail in Missouri and shot quite a few deer with it. And again, I, what you're always taught, you know, heart, lung shot, you know, behind the shoulder and every deer that I've ever shot with that particular 243 and most of the time i'm just using cheap remington core lock um, ammunition every deer ran between like 50 and 100 yards with little to no blood and then for a lot of the work i've done we also use 243s and 243 a high shoulder shot so straight up the leg kind of where the spine dips and the shoulder goes through basically you shoot into all that bone um mm -hmm. and they don't go anywhere. I mean, they just straight up drop right where they are. So, you know, since growing up, I always shot the heart lung shot, like you're taught, you know, behind the shoulder, all that. But then as I got into work, you know, every shot now, I won't shoot for behind the shoulder. I will shoot for the high shoulder shot um, every time because it just, it puts animals down right where they are. It's about maybe a, a softball to a, uh, you know, slightly smaller sized area that you have, you know, high on the shoulder low on the spine basically and that's probably high enough up on the shoulder where there's pretty thin layer of meat on the shoulder blade itself and really the only meat you're losing is just that little bit of back strap up on top of the spine yeah the very front part of the back strap is typically all you're losing um, so like you said you're wanting to bust the top part of both shoulders and cause all that bone fragment um, to drive into the spine pinch the spine as well um, and you'll know they'll basically their back legs will fold under them and then they'll just tip over and I know some people too, that will intentionally aim for the neck, which if you hit where you're, you're aiming at, that's a very lethal shot too. I usually will end up aiming behind the shoulder just because the rib meat to me is not as sought after as the neck meat. Some people just don't care for neck meat, but I feel like I get uh, some pretty good meat off of the neck. So I don't intentionally aim off the, or toward the neck, but if that's the only shot that I'm given, say a deer standing in some tall grass, I'd take that shot. Yeah, I would tend to shy away from neck or headshots just because it's such a small target. And you can, if you miss by just a little bit, you're more prone to wound that animal and not be able to find it than you are to actually be able to, you know, drop that animal with one shot. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. You know, with, with that high shoulder shot, if you miss high, you're going to go clean over the deer. If you miss low, you're still going to go into the shoulder, um, you know, catch lung 
if you're really, really low, you're going to catch heart. Um, so to me, that's kind of a, an all around good place to, good place to shoot deer. So if you have a preferred weapon bullet combination for whitetails, what would it be? Would it be the 243 or would it be something else? It'd be a 95 grain 243. Um, I've killed more deer. I mean, I've got a 308. They're good. Um, you know, to me, anything over a 308 for whitetail is, is overkill. Um, there's really no point in it necessary. Um, you know, unless you're one of these guys that comes out West and hunts a lot for elk with firearms. Um, and then you're shooting, you know, like a 300 wind mag for elk and stuff like that. But if you're dedicated hunting whitetail, you know, every year and you, to me, if you shoot more than a 308, you're, you're overkill. Um, but I would choose a 95 grain 243 and, you know, I'm accurate easily out to 300 yards. A soft bullet? Uh, so the one we used, I'm trying to think it was, um, it was kind of like the Amax out of the Hornady. So it was a polymer tipped, um, bullet. I can't even think of the actual, it's got a yellow tip on it. So it's not a Hornady, but I can't think of the, it was custom loaded by a guy out of, uh, Maryland actually. Um, he's one of the few people that can sell like factory, their factory reloads, I guess. So he's insured to sell reloads. Do you know what kind of muzzle velocities you're getting with that 95 grade bullet? I don't off the top of my head. Okay. Yeah, one of the reasons for me why I decided to go with a 30 out six was just because for me the 30 out six is a very popular round, so I'm never really going to have issues finding ammunition for it. And it's again one of those weapons that I can take out west and just maybe use a different bullet than I would for whitetails. Yeah, exactly. With that 30 out six, you'll be able to you know bump up in grain weight and get a heavier grain weight to be able to hunt elk or. Um, you know, stuff out here in the West and be able to go down to like a 165 or a 180 um, there in the East to hunt whitetails with. So it's a it's a relatively versatile caliber, and I think it's probably it would be a close race between a 30 out six and a 30 30 as to which has killed more deer in the United States. Yeah, for sure. If I was only using it to hunt whitetails, I'd probably go with a lighter a lighter weapon as well. I don't know if I'd go with a 243 or a 270. I think for me, both of those sound like they're, you know, totally adequate. The nice thing about the 243, obviously, is you got a very little kick. So it's easy yeah, to shoot exactly. accurately. And it, it ultimately makes people a better shot because they don't flinch as much. Um, you know, if you flinch at all when you shoot, then you're not going to be accurate whatsoever. Um, you know, the great way is like, you know, have somebody else load the gun for you and shoot. Um, you know, if that gun doesn't kick you and come back, um, you know, and you're bracing for it, then it's not a true surprise release and a good shot. And so how much practice do you do with a firearm to get proficient outside of actually hunting with it? A lot. I shoot a lot of rounds, um, through a gun to, I mean, just to make sure the gun's on, you know, we had an instance one time, uh, I can remember, we use night vision in front of a rifle scope and by just putting the night vision on in front of the scope, the scope wasn't touched at all. I don't know if it was just looking through the lens of the night vision, but it changed a point of impact of that bullet, um, from what it would be during the daytime. I don't know if the, it was just the curvature of the lens and the night vision that we were looking through. Um, but it pushed us off over four inches at a hundred yards, um, which is tremendous for us. Hmm. You know, that particular, that particular gun is, you know, a, half inch moa gun easily every day um you know and we took it out at night shot it and we're like we're even close and we couldn't figure out what was going on so it had to you know resulted down to the night vision on that and for me i guess i'll be honest i only shoot a handful of rounds a year including the ones that i use when i hunt uh for me i of course when i was younger grew up doing like a we did it wasn't quite like a like a boy scout thing, but it was something else. We had like a boys and girls club near my town growing up and they had a riflery club and you were able to shoot 22s, um, on an indoor range. And I don't know how many thousands of rounds I shot just with a 22 long rifle that doesn't obviously have any kick at all, but just honing in on all the, the breathing and the, um, the mechanics of shooting that now I feel like if I shoot five rounds at the range a year, 
or if I shoot 50 rounds at the range a year, it's not going to make a whole lot of difference because mentally my shot process is going to be probably the same. Um, and ultimately it comes down to, for me, how steady I'm able to hold once I'm in the woods. Uh, typically when I'm shooting off of a bench, I'm using some kind of a lead sled or something where I don't feel a kick anyway. Um, and I've gotten to the point where I really don't flinch much at all. And obviously in the woods, you don't feel the kick when you're shooting at an animal. So I don't feel the flinch there either. So, um, for me, I've been able to stay proficient enough just on fewer rounds a year, but that might not be the case for everybody. Yeah, exactly. And that's most hunters, like you said, they shoot, you know, four or five shots, you know, a week before deer season, then they load their gun and they may not shoot it all year. And then they put it away and they're going to do the same thing next year. And, you know, you know, for some people that's considered adequate, um, you know, and they're perfectly happy with that. So, you know, it's whatever makes you feel the most confident. Like you said, the, you know, the whole recoil thing, when you're shooting at a deer, most of the time you don't, you don't realize the recoil. Mm Mm-hmm. That's, and that's why you see a lot of people with, you know, busted scopes, you know, scopes busting them in the eye, basically, and bleeding all over the place. And they don't even realize they're bleeding until somebody tells them. Yeah. And for me, too, my average shot distance is very small. I said before that I'd be willing to take, you know, shots well over 100 yards with even the shotgun if I had a good rest. But historically, my shot averages for both shotgun and rifle, it's probably around 40 yards. Very short distance. Yeah. I think. You know, personally, my longest shot outside of work, you know, hunting has been maybe 100 yards, 120 yards, um, something like that. I just, you know, I have no need to shoot farther than that. Um, But I do know there's some people out there that they enjoy the long range shooting aspect of it. Mm -hmm. Um, So they they would rather shoot something at 400 yards than at 200. Yeah, I've I've read and looked into and researched long range shooting too. It's it's very it's an interesting topic. It's one of those things where just like you know, becoming more proficient in archery. It's, it's about, you know, becoming one with your weapon and, and really getting into it and almost treating it as the shooting sport as a hobby. And, uh, I think that's very intriguing for a lot of people. It would be for me. I just haven't, you know, really dedicated the time to building a long range rifle. Yeah. It can be pretty time consumptive as well as, um, sink a lot of money into it really quick Oh yeah. on, you know, just, and if you don't really reload, it's kind of hard to, um, because you have to, you tune your loads to your gun, um, and to get the best performance out of it. Yeah. And, you know, as far as the, the distance that you're actually getting away from the game animal, it's like, I bow hunt because I want to get close. If I'm rifle hunting, I don't really, it doesn't bother me taking a long shot. It's what the yeah. weapon's capable of. I'm out there to fill a tag. Yeah. And that's kind of the benefit of the the rifle that a lot of people gravitate towards is, you know, you're not restricted to that 30 yards radius around you. You know, you've opened that up to whatever they feel comfortable with, whether that's, you know, 80, um, or whether that's 400 yards. Well, and the other thing too, is it's so much easier to get a shot off undetected with a, a gun than it is a bow. I mean, the tree that I was hunting in for opening weekend here in Minnesota, I never would have even been able to draw a bow back just because there were so many branches around me. So I can kind of just go up in a tree and just tuck myself in there. And I can do jumping jacks in some of those trees and never get picked off, but I'd never be able to bow hunt out of them. Yeah. And like ground blinds, uh, elevated box blinds, things like that. You know, a lot of people, you know, like to gun hunt out of those, but not very many people. I mean, ground blinds people bow hunt out of, but you know, some of the, I'm thinking of some elevated box blinds that's on a family friend's property. That's, you know, they're like, a porta potty basically is really what they are. The guy owns a porta potty business and they retrofit old porta potties for deer stands. I've always wanted to hunt out of one of those big permanent stands like you see a lot of. Um, I know there's a ton of them in Minnesota, just on like, you know, like the family properties around the state and surely Wisconsin as well. Uh, but some of those permanent built stands where you got maybe a 8x8, 10x10 platform, a big box that's set up 15, 20 feet up in the air and you can put in a, a satellite, <laughs> satellite dish and a, a Mr. Buddy heater and actually be comfortable in the woods. I'd like to, tr- I'd like to try it once. I wouldn't want to do it all the time. It would seem strange to me, but, uh, just to try it once to get that experience would be kind of nice instead of sitting there freezing my butt off. <laughs> the, the heater in the lunchbox, that'll keep you in the stand all day. <laughs> yeah. I got pretty nasty on opening day. It was about 
35 degrees, which wasn't too bad, but it was misting the entire day. So the entire day you were just wet and uh, much colder than it had felt. Or much cold, you felt much colder than the temperature said. Put it that way. Oh yeah, really tough to see through the, the scope. The moisture in the air doesn't doesn't help when it's colder. So it adds a lot of a lot of different feeling to the temperature. Mm-hmm. How about that? Yeah, but that adds uh, another advantage to being able to hunt with a gun is you can just load yourself up with clothes like the Michelin Man and still get a shot off. Yeah, kids, it's fantastic. I think all these states that do. I'm going to go off on a little tangent here. All these people who complain about like youth seasons being, you know, in the rut or in the best part of the time to hunt and all this stuff, just get over it. I mean, we're hunting is a dying industry. So as many kids as we can get out in the woods, let the kids out there. If you've got to wear orange or you got to put up with a couple kids out in the woods, just stay home that weekend for that matter. Um, you know, that's one thing that drives me nuts is you see on all these forums that people complain about youth season being this time of year. You know, it's the best time for bow hunters to be out there and all this. It's all about getting kids outdoors to hunt. Um, you know, a lot of times later in the year, it's going to be too cold for the kids. Early season, the kids may not see something. So it's all about getting them out there and letting them see stuff. Um, and that's the benefit of gun hunting is you can put them in these box blinds in a ground blind where they can play with things and not be just sitting out in the open disturbed um, and disturb a deer if a deer comes by. Right, absolutely. The first deer I ever shot was actually on private land and not a full box blind, but it was a a permanent tower stand that um, it was just open on the top. It was basically just a platform that you could stand on. A lot of deer, perfect time of year, a lot of deer movement, and that kind of got me hooked for sure. And, I mean, ever since then I've gotten a little bit more more and more hardcore and uncomfortable at some of my setups to try and, you know, take deer on, on public land. But yeah, there's definitely something to be said about making it fun for the, the younger generation. Most of my deer were taken, you know, up until probably sophomore, junior year of high school, all of my deer were taken off the ground at the base of a tree. Uh, you know, that's the way we hunted as a family. I can remember my first deer, I shot a button buck at five yards you know, sitting at the base of a tree and that's just the way we hunted. And, you know, I, I, we didn't have box blinds or anything like that. Dad just bundled us up and set us at the base of a tree and he sat right next to us. And that's the way it was. And like I said, I mean, it wasn't until sophomore year of high school that I hunted from a tree stand for the first time. Well, and depending on where you hunt it, some, some places tree stands almost hurt you more than help. Like the places here in Minnesota, there's just, there's so much grass and weeds and and whatnot that if you're not elevated some amount you're really limiting what you can actually see yeah in some areas if i remember right in virginia a couple of the counties that i hunted in you had to hunt from a tree stand there was no hunting from the ground you had to be at least 12 feet off the ground if i remember right 12 or 15 feet off the ground by law yeah by law yeah the metro hunts here in the twin cities the the coordinated ones are the same way you got to be, I don't remember what the exact number of feet is, but you got to be elevated. Yeah. And gun season's typically, you know, an interesting time of the year because you get a lot more people that come out during gun season. So you, you start to have a lot more hunter to hunter interactions, whether they go good or bad, but it's just good to, you know, get out there and spend the time with family and friends to go out gun hunting. That's typically what I use most all the firearm seasons that I hunt in. Uh, for example, the hunt that I'm going to go in in December in Virginia. It's a shotgun only, buckshot only hunt, but it's more about the camaraderie with the guys than it is the hunt actually. So, yeah, definitely. And here in Minnesota, you can still party hunt um during firearm season, so there's a lot of people that have resistance to that law and want to get it changed like a lot of other states where you have to fill your own tags. But for the people that literally are just doing it for that weekend and that's their annual trip and that's their camaraderie it makes a lot of sense for them to be able to fill some tags and you know get some sticks made and some sausage yeah and that's really what it's all about is is getting out there and you know being with those guys filling the freezers as much as anything so how about we talk a little bit about uh firearm specific strategies okay so yeah i mean for the most part firearm specific strategy for me that if I know I'm going to hunt with a firearm is going to be, you know, especially later in the season, hunting field edges or cut beans, um, corn, things like that, where I'm going to be able to cover, cover a longer 
area, a wider area than I typically would. I typically wouldn't hunt field edges with a bow whatsoever. I would hunt back in the woods um, on a travel path to that. But, you know, with a firearm, I would have no problem setting out in a fence row, you know, 200 yards, 150 yards in the cut field, basically, or on a center pivot, for example, and shoot back into the woods. And are you still um, trying to, for the most part, do hunts where you're sitting on the ground or whether you do stands, saddles? What's your preferred? Does it does it matter? It varies. Most of the time, you know, going to be on the ground or in a saddle. I don't, don't use really tree stands anymore. So it's saddle hunting for the most part. Um, it can be a little difficult at first with firearms because you the bridge, uh, but it's kind of beneficial because you can use the tree in front of you as a rest. So you can get a really solid rest. And then, like I said, I just grew up hunting from the ground with a firearm. So, you know, firearms in my hand, I kind of want to hunt from the ground anyways. And for most of your firearm seasons that you participate in, are they during the rut or after the rut? So for Missouri, it's always been in the rut. I think it starts, it's like the second Saturday in November every year. Uh, Muzzleloader season comes in later than that typically. Uh, Whereas in Virginia, the muzzleloader season came in like the 18th of October, and then firearm season came in later than that. And so will you change your strategy for those different states, depending on their uh, relationship to the rut? Not not really, no, because I, typically I hunt you know, just travel corridors for the most part. Um, whereas, you know, I typically I if I'm hunting field edges during the rut, I typically won't. I'll back off into the woods. But later in the year, like Virginia, their gun season ran into like January. So by then a lot of deer are hitting the field edges in January uh, to come out and eat you know, what's left of the crops or just out in the green grass and pastures, hay pastures and things like that. So I would hunt on fields late season, but in the rut, you know, for the most part, I'm hardwoods, uh, transition points, things like that. Okay. So I guess for me, uh, I guess every, all the firearms hunting that I've done ever since the first deer that I shot was, has been on public land. Uh, and so for me, the field edge thing doesn't really apply because a lot of times the, the public or the state land won't have uh, agriculture, won't have fields unless it's just like a, an overgrown, you know, kind of grass or like a, an oak savanna. And typically you don't see a whole lot of movement out in those open areas during daylight unless it's a deer that got kicked up and it's just running 100 miles an hour. And also to those type of areas where you can see a long ways tend to attract guys that maybe aren't the greatest hunters don't know what they're doing, but they see guys hunting field edges on TV and they think that's what they got to do as well. And you never really hear a lot of shooting coming from those guys. So for me, my strategy for firearms, I'll go kind of over what I would typically do for Wisconsin, which is a season that's after the rut. And I'll then go over what I do for Minnesota, which this is the first year, like I said, that I've been firearms hunting in Minnesota. Um, So for Wisconsin, a little bit after the rut, my strategy almost entirely hinges upon escape routes and learning what the other hunters are going to do and what that does to the deer movement. I grew up in a large cattail marsh and essentially what would happen is you would get a large pocket of hardwoods surrounding the parking lot and opening morning guys would just flood into those hardwoods. Some guys would hunt the edges, some guys would just hunt in the middle, uh, pretty much just a pumpkin patch throughout those hardwoods. But then you get out into the actual marsh itself and there'd be little islands of trees. You'd have uh, pockets of red brush. You'd have cedar swamps, uh, tamarack swamps. And it took me a few years to figure out this particular strategy on that piece of land. But what I eventually found was that if I went through the hardwoods and then through the cattail slash dogwood swamp, I eventually got to another transition about a half mile further in, which was the edge of a big tamarack swamp. And I could climb way up into some of those tamarack trees and be extremely well hidden and basically have a view of that entire marsh between where I was set up and those hardwoods where most of the guys are sitting. And it was far enough back and the deer felt safe enough in the marsh that typically if I got back there early enough, uh, what I would find is that the guys filtering into the hardwoods would start pushing the deer out into the marsh. And once they got out into the marsh, it would still be dark, of course. Um, 
but they would start to slow down and become more comfortable in their movement. They wouldn't just be flying at a hundred miles an hour. And so eventually they would come back and meet the transition of the Tamarack Swamp. But by the time they did that, it was typically late enough where it was already daylight. And so I would start seeing a lot of deer back in those, um, on those escape routes where sometimes I would go and see eight, nine, I think I've seen as many as like a dozen deer and sits like that when you know, you can see the parking lot through your binoculars and there's 15 trucks and you haven't heard other, another shot the entire day. Um, so learning those escape routes, especially for those post rut firearm hunts can be absolutely critical. Uh, but on the flip side, once the hunter pressure kind of dies down after opening weekend, it can get really tough on those type of hunts because the deer are just, they're just not moving. It's after the rut. They've just gotten spooked out by tons of hunters. They're just sitting tight for the most time until after dark. And unless you get maybe a big cold snap that gets the deer moving on their feet again, trying to get some, some, uh, food, what can work a lot of times is if you end up having a small group or at least a couple other guys is you can have one guy, not like a full blown deer drive, but you can do small pushes and have one guy sit up in a tree stand, maybe on a point that's sticking out into the marsh and have another guy or two just kind of slowly walk through the, the red brush and kick, try and kick out some of those deer. And then a lot of times, you know, because you might not necessarily have the deer smell the person that kicked them up or be able to see them, those deer might only go a certain ways before they stop running and, and slow down again. And then the guy can get a, a more relaxed shot versus kind of the typical deer drive, you know, deer flying through at a hundred miles an hour, shoot it at eight times before it gets away uh, deer drive that most people think of. So marshes in Wisconsin, that's kind of been my main strategy, focus on uh, escape routes. For hill country where it's a little bit different, you know, some of the places in western Wisconsin, you don't have those massive unbroken pieces of land with those swamps. A lot of times you get more uh, smaller broken up pieces of, of land. And so it's really not that hard for people to park at the parking ladder on the side of the road and walk as far as you can walk before you run out of land. And so for those type of scenarios, what it really boils down to, at least for me, is finding the great funnels along the escape routes. And the better the, the terrain funnel, the more likely I'm going to be able to see deer there. So I might sit over a bedding area, but more likely I'm just going to be over like a, you know, a transition between, say, a bluff and an open field, you know, where you got some like CRP or something growing where you just got maybe like a 40 yard strip of timber where, you know, those deer are going to run through because they can't go obviously down across the bluff and they're not going to go out in that open field if they've just been spooked by somebody else. And there's a place, uh, a state park in Western Wisconsin that I've, every time I've sat in a certain spot on opening weekend, I've without exception seen deer, uh, on opening weekend. And again, it's just that same pattern where it's, they can't go past a certain point because it's a vertical wall. And then they stay inside the woodlot. So every deer that gets kicked up by somebody else runs through that area. Um, so that's, that's kind of my Wisconsin strategy in a nutshell. It's totally dependent on other hunters. Minnesota, I've, I uh, go ahead. So, uh, let's kind of back you up here a little bit. Explain to everybody out there who might not know what or how to find them. How do you find your escape routes for deer? Um, and kind of explain, I mean, I, kind of figure everybody knows escape route is the way a deer goes to get away from other people or away from danger, mm -hmm. but kind of talk a little bit about how you find that and what makes you determine that as an escape route. Sure. So with swamps and marshes, it's a little bit easier to look at them and find them through the maps with hill country where it's, you know, not as, not as obvious with the transition lines. It's a little bit easier to find those places on foot. Uh, so I guess I'll start with, with marshes, what I'm looking for basically is I'm looking for the area where most hunters are going to be. A lot of times you'll get a majority of hunters that don't want to cross wet water. And sometimes if it's already frozen, if the marsh is frozen, they'll start to walk out into the marsh and that'll change things. But for the most part, people don't like to get wet. So I'll use that to my advantage. And then a lot of times you'll be able to see, especially if there's little islands of timber surrounded by wetland, a lot of times you'll see trails like, uh, spokes on a, on a bike wheel going in and out of those islands. So a lot of times those islands can be kind of 
uh, just like pinball locations that deer will run through before going to another spot. So those can be great places to look for escape routes. Um, the other place would be, you know, like the second level transition where you know that it might take you a heck of a long time and a tough walk to get to a different transition area. Um, you know, most other people aren't going to necessarily be there. And if you, if you can see trails heading to that transition or along that transition, you know that you most likely have that, uh, transition area to yourself. Whereas some of the closer transition areas will probably be covered by people who know what to look for. And then with the, uh, with the hill country ones that are just harder to look at on maps and see exactly what you're looking for, you know, I'll start with a topo map and I'll look for places like saddles and I'll look for steep ravines. Um, the closer together the topo lines are, the steeper the land is going to be. And so if I see something that looks really steep, you got a lot of lines really close to one another that indicates to me that there might be a bluff. And a lot of times a deer will stay just on the top side of that bluff. And so it might be worth it just to take a quick on or boots on the ground scouting trip to go check that area out. And if you look along the top side of those bluffs, a lot of times you'll be able to see a deer trail, uh, just on top of the, of the land where they have to go basically. And generally the further away I can get from a parking lot, the better. If I can help it, just because the further you are away from the parking lot, the more likely you're going to have deer that are not getting pushed past you before it actually gets light on, say, opening morning. Because a lot of those deer are getting kicked around still when guys are walking in with their flashlights. So the further away you can be from a lot of that action, the better. So for me in the hardwood area, you know, finding those escape routes is just if you bump a deer, say you're out scouting or you're walking to your stand, just kind of observe where that deer goes and what general direction it's traveling. And for the most part, they're going to kind of follow those patterns. So I kind of learned that doing deer drives in Virginia with those guys out there is, you know, once we kind of figured out the general direction that deer would head, um, you know, after one or two times, you could really fine tune on where you wanted to put guys in tree stands um, to catch those deer as they were basically trying to use those escape routes by determining just seeing where the deer went ever after you bumped them. Absolutely. And especially if you got snow on the ground, it makes it really easy. And you might, it might take you a couple of years to figure it out. But over time, you start learning where these deer go. Um, even if you're, if you're able to follow the tracks in the snow, say, obviously you can't do that in some of those southern places that you hunt. But like if I jump a deer in firearm season, if I'm walking through a marsh and I see his big tracks, I want to know where he's going. So I'll just follow those tracks. I might have, you know, mentally given up on most likely the chance to be able to shoot that deer, but I can see where he goes and use that escape route as knowledge for next year, essentially. All right. So now that we've, we've kind of addressed what an escape route is and how to find them, um, go ahead and continue with your, your plan for your other state. So for Minnesota, the, obviously the big difference between it and Wisconsin is that Minnesota's rifle season is right during the rut. It opened up last weekend, which was November 3rd or 4th, November 4th. And it's usually, you know, within a couple of days, it's always kind of that first weekend in November. And so for the longest time, I kind of avoided it just because I'd rather bow hunt during that time. But now what I've been finding is that kind of dissimilar to Wisconsin where it's after the rut. And if you don't get the people moving the deer around, you don't get a ton of daylight movement on its own. In Minnesota, I'm still seeing a lot of daylight movement, even though there might not necessarily be hunters around pushing those deer. So like opening day, opening weekend, there's tons and tons of hunters in the woods and they're moving deer around. But after that, it really dies off in terms of the pressure but I'm still able to, you know, see some rut movement. You'll, you'll see new scrapes popping up in the snow. You'll see, uh, bucks chasing does in and out of bedding areas. I've seen a few of that, a little bit of that already. You'll get even deer just doing their daily patterns of bed to feed, um, during daylight. At least that's what I've noticed. And I haven't really seen a ton of that in Wisconsin by contrast. So for me so far in this marsh that I've been trying to learn after my opening, opening day plan of hunting the escape routes, uh, I'd only seen a, a couple deer. Uh, but since then I've been hunting, basically trying to overlook big bedding areas, you know, big pockets of dogwood and trying to get over areas where there's not many trees, 
one for visibility, but two, I think that especially in a place like that, a lot of the older deer, especially they seem to try and avoid hardwood areas if they can and do a lot of their traveling where there's no trees. And I don't know if that's just a, you know, an association of trees with, with hunters. Um, and obviously the rut, anything can happen, but it just seems like a lot of the bigger deer that I know of that have been shot out there. And a lot of the big tracks that I've been seeing running through, uh, along trails in the marsh, they seem to go through areas where there's just not a lot of tree cover. So if I'm able to sit up in, you know, like a big, uh, a big poplar tree or something, or a big, uh, oak or maple overlooking a bedding area, I'm able to actually see deer, you know, first thing in the morning, filter back in through the marsh and bed down in that red brush. Uh, and the same thing in the evening, I'm able to actually see the deer pop up out of their beds in that bedding area and head toward the feed, and, you know, mixed in with, you know, some yearling bucks running around does, uh, that type of thing. So that's definitely something that's, I think a little bit more advantageous for the Minnesota gun hunter, because you don't have to obviously depend on other people to move the deer for you. Right. Yeah. I mean, typically where I've hunted, you know, I can remember growing up, we always hunted public land for the most part there in Missouri, and we never hardly seen a soul out there hunting. Um, it was primarily just my family, uh, maybe my uncle and my cousin that hunted down this one timber road, and we wouldn't see anybody. I can remember it probably wasn't until, oh, probably I was 17 or 18 that we started encountering other hunters basically down the road that we hunted down obviously it wasn't i mean it was public land so it was fine with us but it took that long you know for public land to become that crowded in the area that i hunted in so i never really had to do with you know people moving deer to us so a lot more of mine was you know hunting just those transition points for the deer um, you know there's one particular spot that comes to mind where it's basically deer coming out of this bedding area it's kind of thick on one side and then it's wide open you know oak ridge on the other and they'd always just cruise that area and i think we've my family's killed uh, probably seven or eight pretty good bucks off of that little stretch um, pretty much within 30 yards of each other and it seems like once you find a strategy like that it seems to be able to repeat itself fairly well unless you get uh, you know something that screws it up yeah i mean that particular spot that i'm thinking of i mean i can think of seven deer that were taken off the same ridge um, like I said, probably within 60 yards of each other. Uh, it'd be interesting, like if you could go back and mark where all of them were when you shot to see, you know, just how close they really were, you know, for some reason, that's a really good pinch point for bucks that are cruising during the rut. Um, you know, they like to cruise on the one side of that ridge. Yeah. I guess for me around the twin cities area, there's, I mean, there's places in Wisconsin that I can drive public land during bow season and there won't be a soul out there. Uh, there's even some places in this marsh I've been telling you about where I'll go bow hunt it during the, you know, like a Friday or Saturday, Sunday hunt. And just depending on where I'm at, I might be the only vehicle there. There's other people hunting it, but you know, in different locations, but it seems like every place that I've gone or drove driven past for firearms, Wisconsin or Minnesota, I've yet to find a place that doesn't have at least some other hunters. And I guess to just kind of give you a, a little bit of, um, perspective, on opening morning, I arrived at the parking lot an hour and 45 minutes before daylight. And I had already passed 16 other vehicles. They're already parked. A lot of guys are already walking out into the woods at that time. So, um, I'm assuming by the, by the time uh, daylight actually broke, that number of vehicles had risen dramatically. Yeah. You would just have to assume, I mean, I don't think they're going to go down. Most people's not going to walk out there and be like, yeah, no, never mind. I'm going to go home for the day mm -hmm. and turn around and, and turn around and go back in. Yeah. That's, that's kind of crazy. You know, I hunted a, a national wildlife refuge in college. It was bow only. And that's, you know, probably the most crowded public land I've ever had to hunt. Um, just cause it was known for producing big deer. Um, so I, that area, you know, you, I probably would have done better if I would have learned then, you know, to hunt um, escape routes, um, especially for people coming in and just busting brush. Cause it was so thick in most of that. So, yeah. And I mean, you can definitely use the size of a place to its advantage. I mean, the place I'm telling you about, is kind of the same deal where there's so many hunters, but there's so much land and there's so many places for those deer to hide and get away from hunters where people would just not be willing to walk. And as a result, there's some really big bucks running around. They're just hard to kill. 
Yeah, and I think you know the amount of forested land compared to open land, whether it's marsh or whether it's agriculture or just CRP for that matter, kind of really plays a role on hunter density on these public land areas. Because like you said, a lot of people won't hunt the marsh around there. They want to tend to stick into the timber. Uh, And I think, you know, that even goes for CRP and things like that. So, you know, don't overlook like tripod stands out in the middle of CRP um, or, you know, in some of these grown up hay fields and things like that, you know, just to get away from people. Oh yeah. Uh, anything overlooked is always, always has a potential to be a gold mine. Um, I just showed you, you know, the pictures of the step ladder that I bought at Menards the other day, just a little six foot ladder that I can put in the, the back of my, uh, the bed of my truck. I spray painted it all, uh, tan and put some camouflage on it and I put a nice shoulder strap on it so I can carry it out, you know, three quarters of a mile into the marsh and just set it up in the middle of the, the cattails and the dogwood and, just get high enough where I can kind of, you know, nestle against some of that brush and, and still be able to see a trail or two. Yeah. Just strap that thing down. So when you send around downrange, it doesn't tip over on you. <laughs> that, that, that'd be something funny to see. Yeah. I mean, the nice thing is you land in a nice, you know, nice cushion of cattails and, and grass. So, um, but I think yeah. by the next time I get out there, it'll probably be frozen enough where it's just going to be a, a, you know, a solid layer of ice. I was already busting through the ice every step the last time I was out, and it's been pretty cold since then. Yeah, so for those of you who aren't familiar, basically it's um, like a Summit X-Pod is the stand that they used to make. It's an A-frame ladder that he's just planning on sitting on top of. Um, Summit kind of made one years ago. It's a you know a lightweight, interesting tripod option, basically, except for it's more of a bipod than a tripod. Um, so, yeah, something like that is – don't overlook using a resource like that to get out in these areas where there won't be people because of visibility reasons, but being able to get up above the brush or in his case, the marsh. Oh yeah, for sure. So caliber choice. Um, I know we've touched on it before, um, but kind of just to touch back onto it a little bit again, it's, you know, caliber choice goes hand in hand with bullet choice. Like we talked about of, you know, what bullet. So if you're using a gun that you like, but you haven't had good results for it, you know, try and change ammunition. And I know a lot of people, I'm guilty for it when I was a kid, you know, that like Remington core lock, stuff like that. A lot of people hunted with that. Um, you know, look at, you know, if the gun's not accurate, it may be your ammunition as much as anything, um, as well as how you mounted your scope. That's a, that's a huge, a huge thing. I know when I worked at the sporting goods store, people would come in three days before season and, you know, buy a gun and want you to bore sight the scope and then ask you if they can hit a deer at a hundred yards with that. It's like, no, you you need to go shoot this first. (laughs) Yeah. The scope and the rings and bases on my rifle cost more than the rifle, which is a good rule of thumb should be, this is, I don't remember who told me this, but basically your scope and your rings and bases should cost twice of what your gun cost. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it's, it's tough to go wrong because your rifle is, you know, probably going to be more accurate than you are unless you have an extremely steady rest. And the optics that you put on it can be really make or break. I will tell you one of the best bargain guns that I've ever had to deal with and ever have dealt with. They used to be called, they're Mossberg. They used to be called the 100 ATR. I think now they're called like the Patriot. Um, they're synthetic stocked. They make them in a youth model that takes a shim in the stock. Um, they used to come, like I said, when I did it, they were called 100 ATR. They came with a little three by nine scope on them, and they were like maybe 329 for the complete setup. And for the gun, they are a tack driving little gun. They came in 243, 7 millimeter, 08, and 308, I believe. Um, so if you're in the market for just a, a cheap, really good gun, uh, that Mossberg 100 ATR or Patriot, whatever they call it now is a, is a really good gun for what it is. And like I said, you know, I know guys that bought them and put, you know, $500 loophole scopes or, um, you know, vortex scopes on them. And they worked out well beyond belief. Um, you know, I, my cousin just bought one for his kid here recently and it's, it's a tack driving little gun. Do you know what the price is on those roughly? I, it's sub 350. I want to say, um, it's somewhere right around there. I think, like I said, when I was selling them, this is back a while ago, they were like 329 And like I said, I think that came with a scope then. Um, now they may be a little bit more. 
but I, like I said, I want they're sub 350 for a bolt action. You know, I think it's uh, two magaz or two rounds in the magazine, and then one in the one in the gun. So, yeah, another good rifle to throw in that group is the Savage Axis, which is actually the rifle that I have. I think, like you said, kind of very similar price. I think for like 330 bucks, you can get the combo with a scope, cheaper scope. Mine, since it was left-handed, it made more sense for me just to buy the bare rifle, which I think was like 280 bucks. And then I just put like a $350 scope on it and like 70 or $80 rings and bases. And that thing will shoot sub MOA. Yeah, a lot of guns nowadays will, um, you know, especially if you want to spend the time to shoot different boxes of ammo to find the best ammo for your gun. You can easily shoot sub MOA for most rifles, most production rifles now. Um, you don't have to go all out unless you're shooting, you know, two, three thousand yards. You don't have to go into all these custom rifles. For most deer hunters, the over-the-shelf, you know, rifle that you're going to buy is going to be more than adequate for you. Mm-hmm. Any, you got anything else? I think we've covered a lot of what we wanted to cover with this podcast. Yes, just uh, stay safe. Wear your orange. Always know what you're shooting at before you pull the trigger. Those are those are my final thoughts for gun hunters heading out. Like I said, most of them are out um, now. Most of them are going to be going out about the time this podcast goes out on Thursday. Be safe, shoot straight. That's right.